0: The General Planning Podcast takes you backstage and explores the world of planning and strategy development. We will get you into the minds of successful leaders and executives in our government and industry and hear firsthand how they made some of America's most historic decisions. I'm your host, Mark Lavin, the Director of Strategy, Plans, and Policy at Army North. And I'm here with Seth Barham, the Public Affairs Operations Chief. Join us as we learn about planning and strategy from our nation's best. Okay, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Today's episode is on assessments, uh, but more specifically understanding when it's time to refresh and take an entirely new approach. So if strategies are our theories of victory, then understanding the assumptions that we're making to achieve our desired results, assessments are critical in terms of understanding when we have to adjust those approaches. And building a culture of learning is a big part of that. Almost preventing the bus to Abilene scenario. So we have a great episode lined up today with a truly accomplished military planner and strategist, but also five years removed from the Army, uh, is a renowned business owner and realtor based out of San Antonio, Texas. we got Colonel Retired Dave Abrams. How's it going, Dave? Thanks for coming on the show. It's great. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm absolutely honored to be here and and excited. So before we dive in, I want to give the audience a quick overview of your bio. So Dave Abrams, his go-by name is Tank, Uh, 30-year career in the United States Army, enlisted in 1987, but he's also a 1993 graduate from West Point, commissioned an infantry officer, and retired recently in 2019. During that time, he attended the School of Advanced Military Studies, and he held leadership and planning positions at every level of the Army and our government, including multiple combat tours in Afghanistan. Since retiring from the Army, Tank has become one of San Antonio's top real estate agents with Phyllis Browning Company. He has two adult kids and married to his wife, Carolyn, for almost 20 years. So, Dave, tell us how you did it.
1: <laughs> you want know, to start from, uh, so I was born in San Diego. <laughs> actually, true story, I was, but I didn't live there. Um, thanks for having me on, and, and uh, I, so it's a really interesting question, you know, kind of what got me where I am today. Um, I, I, was, uh, I was just reading uh, an old, actually an article that calls back to an old book, uh, by a guy named uh, Dr. James Austin, the book is "Chase, Chance, and Creativity: The Lucky Art of Novelty," and uh, and he outlines four theories of luck. and I don't know if you've heard this or not, but this is a great. Uh, it's great because it actually gives you gives people a framework for creating their own luck. There's blind luck, and there's actually blind luck theory. How do you how do you position yourself to to for blind luck? Um, luck from motion, luck from awareness, and luck from uniqueness. Uh, and I'll say, flat out, I've been, I, I've, I've, I've capitalized on all of those at some point in my life. Uh, I was a very unlikely uh, West Point attendee and graduate, uh, but I was extremely lucky at one point in my life to be uh, to be met by a guy who had some things in common with me that encouraged me to enlist in the army because there was no way I would have got in with my uh, with my poor high school grades, and then after a couple of years of enlistment, uh, get. Uh, I got accepted to uh, the prep school and then to the academy, uh, and then luck from motion. And I think this is really uh, where a lot of it, as we have this conversation, a lot of my uh, success has come from is just get out there and get after it. Like, do like decide if you once you make a decision, you're going to do something. Uh, don't take counsel of your fears. Burn the ships and move out. And uh, and then and then just be you know, part of, a lot of that comes a lot of the ability to do that comes with not taking yourself too seriously, understanding that everybody who's ever been successful at anything has failed first uh, and they're going to fail again. And then, you know, positioning yourself to be able to absorb a failure. Um, and then, you know, especially, th- I think where people get in most trouble is if they fail morally or ethically. Um, so, you know, make sure that you, that you are not taking chances in those areas. But if it's financially, uh, especially, you know, Set yourself up in a way that you can absorb it, but but don't don't take counsel. Don't stop moving, and you're going to create your own luck just by just by doing stuff. And then uh, luck from awareness really means sort of you know studying and, and understanding what you're getting into to the best that you can. And then luck from uniqueness. And I've created kind of a unique brand that's helped me out. Uh, and understanding that that really for me has meant understanding my niche, and then really sort of um, working hard to become the number one option for people within my niche. So uh, I don't know if that's a good answer to your question. I could go on for probably an hour on it. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Uh, and
0: <laughs> where, well, where I want to pull the string a little bit yeah. on is, uh, you know, so we were talking beforehand, you know, rookie, you know, rookie realtor of the year with Phyllis Browning, you know, here in San Antonio, your first year uh, doing it. Uh, second year, uh, you were top 10 of over 10,000 realtors in San Antonio. And then just last year, your team, the, the brand that, that, that I think you were alluding to, uh, came in with thirty-three million dollars worth of sales. Um, is that good? Which is incredible. Uh, so, okay. which is incredible. Um, and so, when you talk about that brand, uh, and then you described your niche, you know, what were some of the what were some of the key moments where you know you were looking back on your time in the military or your time yeah. as a planner, and you thought, you know, maybe this is a, a way to uh, to approach you know, you know getting after that problem. So. Um, I'll kind of start with
1: with why I wound up in real estate, uh, and because that really informs the the rest of the, the story. And so, um, you know, you're going to hear me say this a few times, I think, during this interview. But I read a book once, uh, and the book is called "A Treatise on Efficacy." It was actually a Sam's it was a Sam's required read at the School of Advanced Military Studies. And there's something that stuck with me from that book that really informed all the planning efforts that I, that I led uh, through the rest of my career and then also informed my transition. And it is um, so a treatise on efficacy is a second book uh, by uh, Francois Julien uh, on uh, uh, Eastern military philosophy. Um, And now that I said it, the first one escapes me, but uh, it'll it'll come to me in a little bit. The treatise on efficacy talks about how, The the philosophy in Eastern military or, or you know, an Eastern philosophy of military strategy is understand the events as they would occur without your intervention and then intervene at the point in time that requires the least effort and resources to make the most. And so, and the analogy that they use is uh, find the place up, the furthest place upstream you can place a pebble to divert the flow of water. And they, they think of, uh, they think of time as, as a, as a flow of events not necessarily as something that you can stop, create an end state, and then search for that end state. It, there's really no Chinese uh, philosophy of end states, at least at least by Julian's description. It's really a philosophy of events are going to continue in a certain path, and we want to kind of move them. And so w- when you look at what the Chinese are doing all around the world, they're positioning themselves to create the most impact and effect over long term. I'm not a Chinese uh, expert or strategist. That's just my my interpretation of it, uh, but this idea that you can, you can take a look around you and go, okay, uh, all things being as they are, I'm, uh, how do I approach it, and what's the best chance for success, uh, and I was, I was, uh, I was at so- uh, Army South, it was my last assignment, I knew it was going to be my last assignment, because, you know, the, just the way my Army career went, I knew I wasn't going to be, uh, y- you know, anywhere uh, competitive to, for general officer, And so uh, I had chosen Army South because I love San Antonio and I love the mission I'd been with Southcom. Uh, And then after my, not even my first full year, and Mark, you and I were there together, um, I I was contacted by uh, the senior leader division and told, hey, um, you know, we're really excited for you because we've got a job uh, that requires an Army 06 who's spent, at least one year in Kandahar advising Afghan police, uh, and is, uh, still has a couple years left on his, uh, on his obligation. And of course there was one of us in the army. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and know, oh, by the way, you'll be excited to know that you're familiar with the location cause it's back in Kandahar. So it was my third year in Kandahar. Um, and, and I knew, I, and really when I got that call, I had the option to retire at that time. Uh, but I felt, You know, I felt that that service obligation that somebody's got to do the job, and so uh, I decided I was going to take the job, but that I was going to retire immediately upon return. You know, I was going to submit my retirement immediately upon return, which would give me basically a year uh, working with you and Mark Stammer uh, when he was the commander of Army South. He was great to let me kind of use that time. You know, I I worked for him and he had some missions for me, but I also had a lot of time to study and think about how I was going to transition. So anyway, I had two. The bottom line is, I had two years to think about my my military transition. Um. And I read something early on where, um, somebody and I think it might have been Jason Ron who's a great follow on LinkedIn for anybody who's transitioning. Uh, he's a retired lieutenant colonel. He's spent a, he's a great writer. He spent a ton of time uh, thinking about how to, uh, you know, ha- how to, um, how to structure and frame your experience as you're going from senior army leader, or senior military leader, any service, uh, into this kind of great unknown that really shouldn't be as fearful for people as it is. And, and I could talk about a little bit about that later too. But so anyway, uh, the, but the, the stat was, uh, and it, this pro- number's probably changed. This was six years ago when I read it, but senior leaders, uh, E9s and, uh, and O6s and above, if they take a job immediately upon um, retirement, like they're, they're in uh, their, um, you know, they're still in active duty, but they're doing interviews and they get a job. They take a job. Typically, they'll they'll have two more jobs in the next 18th month, 18 months. And why is that? What, what, because what? because they don't know what the hell they want to do. But they were they were so focused on getting a job that they didn't step back and think about how do I want to live, what kind of lifestyle do I want to have, and so and so I remember reading that very early on, like because I like I said I was deploying to Afghanistan. I spent a lot of time studying, getting ready for that. But I also knew I was going to retire, so. The, the stuff I did for fun was I sat down and, and read and thought about what I wanted to do with my life. And, uh, and I also, I had started my, uh, my LLC back in 2014 when, it, when I thought the Army was done with me then. Uh, so I, I knew at some point I, w- I might want to do a, uh, you know, start my own business. But I started thinking about, okay, how do I want to live? What, what are some, I didn't know, I didn't, know any, I didn't even really know who I was. And that's a big problem, I think, with, with people in uniform. Um, so, so I wanted to figure all that out during this time frame. And I, so I stepped back and I said, "Okay, what kind of lifestyle do I want? I don't even know what the lifestyle is in corporate America." So I started scheduling infor, in, informational interviews, uh, and I started and I looked a, across five broad sort of uh, uh, sectors, I guess, uh, just corporate America in general. The industry want, sectors, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Find not it. even industry sectors, even broader than that. So, corporate America, general. Do I want to be part of corporate America? It doesn't matter. Banking or, you know, or, or defense or whatever, um, and then uh, government, and then I thought about owning my own business, and so starting my own business was one, and then buying a franchise was another, and I looked at those two completely separate things, and then always in the back of my mind there was the idea of real estate. Now, I really was thinking about real estate investing, uh, developing and stuff like that. And I think, you know, I'm getting there. That's the direction I'm going eventually. But right now, uh, sales, you know, real estate sales is, is kind of the career path that I've wound up, you know, that was chosen for me, uh, by virtue of sort of eliminating, uh, things. Um, I w- I did an informational interview with a huge company based here in San Antonio, uh, and walked away going, okay, I've, I've had some jobs where I've been responsible for a lot, thousands of soldiers, you know, whether they're U S or Afghan, uh, making decisions that were on the cusp of life or death every day. And some of them resulted in, in, uh, you know, i saved others, uh, others not, uh, but tremendous amount of responsibility. And at the entry level at this big, uh, corporate, and, and maybe I, I took this the wrong way and decided all corporate was like this, but it was really my decision not to do corporate interviews. Um, I needed 13 decisions, 13 signatures. If I had a recommendation for the company, 13 signatures to get my recommendation to the next level, and there were four levels from me to the top guy.
2: Sounds like an old school leaf packet. Yeah, exactly
1: right. Yeah, so stuff you know, carrying stuff around the. And I was like, okay, I don't want to. I don't want to be involved after being part of this huge, um, you know, machine, the military machine. I, I, want, I want to have some autonomy, and that's really the, the word I settled on, and, and I think it's really important for people that are transitioning uh, to decide, you know, what level of autonomy do you want, uh, and that, and it became, for me, it rose to the top, it's like, and, and frankly, one of the reasons that I knew I wasn't going to, I shouldn't have been competitive for Colonel, that's a whole other story, but the fact that I was also, you know, knew I wasn't going to be competitive for General was because I, my entire career, I really kind of, leaned that way, uh, to the detriment of my, of myself and sometimes my bosses. And so, um, so, but I knew autonomy was going to be important for me. Uh, and then I looked at, um, I looked at government, uh, you know, I was coming out of the, the last couple years of Afghanistan and I knew, I, I knew I didn't want to, I, a couple of things. One is when you leave, and this is just something for folks to be aware of too, when you're a senior leader and you, and you leave and you turn around and go right into the GS world, as an example, uh, i I've, know plenty of people who have retired and then became the subordinate to the guy that replaced them you know and so it it just depends on and for some people that's great there's there's a tremendous amount of security in that if that's what you're looking for uh there's also a a great opportunity to contribute and become you know become a a a voice uh to to help direct things but you lose your decision making power and, and again that was where i think I was hungry for for the ability to kind of make decisions that completely impacted so I so I decided not to do federal service actually applied to city of San Antonio two jobs uh, one of them was I applied to be the uh, um, the director of operations for the Alamo Dome, which you know directing operations uh, around you know around the world I thought maybe I could do that uh, but I got a I got a nice letter back that said that uh, I'd, I'd fit in somewhere three levels down from that job I applied for. Wow. Same thing with uh, I applied to be the assistant director of risk management, which is, you know, inherent in everything we did for the last 30 years in the Army. And I was also told, same thing, come in a little lower level and work your way up, which I understand from their perspective. It's like if a guy comes off the street after being a CEO, you're not going to make him a brigade commander, right? If he, if he puts a uniform on And it's the same thing. But I felt like, you know, still, I'm not going to have that kind of autonomy. So I eliminated government um i studied a bunch of franchise. i'd encourage everybody uh who's thinking about transition and thinking about getting into uh, businesses there's a, there's some really great resources small business administration has a uh has a loan that's a it's a pretty easy um pre- especially for retired uh military it's a pretty easy bar to get their lower level of loan it's like a 90 day approval process uh i it was, uh, I think it was two hundred fifty thousand dollars when when I was transitioning. It might be more now, but you can use that to start a business if you you got to present a business plan and all that stuff. And so I was doing, I was thinking about buying a franchise that comes with a business plan, and then taking that business plan, you know, in the in the prep phase over to Small Business Administration. There's a system for doing that and getting a loan to start your franchise. And I so I actually got pretty close. I almost became a mosquito hunter. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, uh, uh they used you. Yeah. Well, if you look at mosquito hunters, they've got a, uh, they've got a cool mascot costume and, and they're, they're actually, it's they go around and they spray people's backyards on a subscription basis. But I decided at the end, I decided I want to uh, also be beholden to a franchise. So then that, you know, again, autonomy came up. Uh, and then the other thing too, uh, the, other, the other important criteria that I think everybody needs to consider is um, I didn't want anybody to put
2: a ceiling on my earning potential. And that's what the franchise would have done ultimately. Franchise
1: does that. Corporate does that. What, the day you get hired is the day you set your cap, mm-hmm. unless you decide unless unless you're hired an assistant vice uh, you know, vice president or whatever VP or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even I mean, there's so many so many vice presidents in so many companies, right? It's almost like you know, vice president is almost a euphemism for the guy who who does the paperwork so anymore. So um, so yeah. So the uh, I, I knew I didn't want anybody to put a cap on my earning potential. Um, and, and, and then it, so it came down to, I actually decided I was going to do two things at once. So I, I restarted my company, uh, Pipeace LLC. Incidentally, uh, one of your previous episodes, you're, you, you invoked uh, General Eisenhower. Yes, of course. PyPeace stands for Planning is Everything, a planning consultancy. Oh, nice. And so the idea that that the idea for that company was born out of a uh, a need for Carnival Cruise Lines back in like 2015 2016 for somebody to write their contingency plans, and I thought I would I actually formed that company because I thought I was going to be a contractor for them for a couple years. A friend of mine took over as their um, uh, vice president of operations, which is like a fleet commander. That's a big job at, at Carnival. And uh, when I thought I was going to be leaving the army out of Southcom and staying in Florida, I was going to do that anyway. I wound up. Uh, through uh, luck and and God's good graces, wound up uh, staying in, and, and uh, so I, but I kept the pipe, the the LLC, and this is something I think everybody, no matter what you do when you leave the army, should start an LLC. Uh, it it costs a couple hundred bucks a year, um, and then anything you do, you, you can write, and, and this is really you, you got to you know step away from, from uh, my experience and say talk to a CPA. Yeah, it's very you know, good. I'm not a CPA, I'm not an attorney, but you can write your, uh, you know, your articles uh, of, uh, of formation in a way that allows you to be pretty flexible. Mm-hmm. And then you have a place to earn money from that you can then expense against. And so that's what I've been doing. Um, and, and it's been really helpful for me. Uh, so, I, so I reactivated PyPiece and I, and I actually got a couple of uh, contracts as a leadership consultant with uh, UTSA. And I found out it it wasn't, it didn't bring me joy. Like, um, it was still too much. And and this is just maybe a a way that I'm different. Um, It was still too much like what I'd been doing for 30 years. And I realized I really needed to do something that stretched me that that got me out of my comfort zone and and that put me in a, you know, in a completely new industry. And, but I also had that, that little piece inside me that we all have that says, I want to continue to serve and do good things. Right. And so Um, I'd had some experiences. I know this is a long, long answer to a really short question, but I I had some experiences, um, buying and selling houses as I, as I moved around the country, like a lot of us do and had real mixed, uh, you know, mixed experiences with my real estate agents, uh, with the exception of, of really one, uh, and possibly two, uh, I, I I felt like, you know, I could have at least done as good as them. There were two that were, that were, you know, fantastic. And then a lot of them, they, they didn't. Anyway, um, so so I felt like I, it was a it was a industry I could jump into, learn and and then become good at. I didn't realize how quickly I would become good at, and a lot of that was due to the market at the time. But uh, so I, that's how I, yeah, decided that, to get my
0: real estate license. No, so I appreciate that, <laughs> and well, I mean, and, and uh, I mean, if I could just say back what I think yeah. I heard you say, well, I mean, essentially, you know, there's a there's a large change, right? You know, you had this plan, you know, you're you're trucking along in a career. Uh, and you sat down and did assessments to evaluate where you want to go yep. and what your different options are. And I think what we just heard was that that was an emotional event that took some time. You know, and I think as planners, when you see, you know, when you see what you've done, you know, to construct a plan or a strategy to achieve certain results, and you're not getting those results, I mean, it's an emotional event, you know, for yourself or even as an organization to sit back and say, "All right, what do I need to adjust? How do I go through that?" And then what it, you know, what's the data behind it? Right? I mean, how is it that I'm, is this emotion? Or like you were, like you were describing in your own life. Right? I mean, you, you had data that you went and found and, and, and touch points to make an, you know, an informed decision and an adjustment,
2: and it's worked out for you. Yeah. Uh, and it's great. And um, you, you also so had, if I can jump in through, you also have to incorporate your family, second and third yeah. order effects of like, hey, if yeah. I make this decision, how's that going to affect them too? Yeah.
1: So I, and I didn't, I, I'll be honest, I didn't do great at that. So, um, you know, Carolyn warned me, doing this real estate thing. It means weekends and, and, uh, and nights. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, but we'll have plenty of time together. And then, you know, we, I've been, I've been working, uh, pretty hard. We have figured out, you know, ways to, to make time, but, but yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing is you have to treat whatever you do. Uh, it's going to take a lot of hard work to get started, whatever you decide to do. Uh, going back to what you said, Mark, the, um, I, it was like lines of inquiry for me. And so, you, you know, almost like a, like a design process more than a, more than a, a campaign like more of like designing the pro or figuring out problematization or whatever we call it used to call it but yeah, and then I figured out uh, through those lines of inquiry I eliminated stuff and, and got to kind of where I where I knew it, where I wound up being
0: successful at yeah right I mean you had an unstructured problem mm-hmm. that you had to apply some level of structure to and you yeah. used design and then at some point you whether you knew it or not you built a campaign plan to go yeah you know to right. adjust your uh your direction um So I guess the follow-up question I was going to ask you um, in terms of, you know, a small business owner, actually a growing business owner, I'll say, um, how do you keep, you know, your pulse on technology trends, market trends? um, You know, are you dabbling in, you know, the big language, artificial intelligence? And how do you see, you know, some disruptors in your your space over the next five, ten years?
1: Yeah, that's great. I mean, there's... um there's a lot of a, a lot of different things going on right now in real estate. I think the the uh, you know the democratization of information, right? Uh, not just through AI, but just you know for years now of access to the internet. Um, and and what what you have to do as an agent is accept that and understand that your clients are going to have almost as good information in a lot of ways as you have. And so you have to provide them context on the ground. Uh, for those who are coming from out of town, uh, you have to be uh, empathetic to the, the unique aspects of their lives. Uh, and then understand, you know, with after having been empathetic or while being empathetic and understanding those, you know, the, the things that, that they're going through, help them find solutions to their problems that make sense, right? A lot of a lot of home buyers get myopic maybe to a neighborhood. Uh, but then they realize, um, you know, sometimes too late after they bought uh, that the neighborhood isn't what they wanted. Um, and so it's really kind of um, staying broadly open to the, the things that are being brought to you by clients and then, um, and then applying all of the different resources, like you asked about, to, um, um, you know, to identifying uh, the, the things that, that you think might be best for them and then present them and then have a back and forth with them. Uh, as far as technology, um, I mean, it's it's a never-ending onslaught, you know, of uh, and, you, and really trying to get – there's a ton of great tools out there. Uh, we use uh, uh, RPR, Realtors Property Resource, is a, is a good data aggregator uh, that helps you do property valuations. Uh, nothing really uh, substitutes – even though you can do – like most people use a Z-estimate. A Z-estimate, uh, you know, that's when you get a, somebody who's a – who's a layperson, even a very experienced layperson, uh, are going to use the Z estimate to say, okay, this is what Z- Zillow says. I hear it all the time. And a lot of times it's close. Sometimes it's way off and it can be thrown way off by an outlier. Uh, Zillow doesn't do a good job of eliminating outliers. And so, you know, if you have a house that was burnt was burnt on the inside uh, in a million-dollar neighborhood and it sold for $300,000 because the lot's worth that much, it looks like that 6,000-square-foot house sold for $300,000. And so Zillow goes, ah, what do I do? I just decrease the value of everything. And so, um, you know, so you have to really do like the stubby pencil method. A lot of times when you're talking to people about, you know, what is this home worth or that home worth? So, so there, there are some, you know, there's never, there's nothing out there right now that substitutes for the hard work and, and understanding sort of what people are looking for. Um, AI is useful though i have actually um, I, I write all my own blogs and things, but I've used it to generate ideas because what i what AI can do is is tell you what people are interested in and then and then you can go, okay well of the ten things that AI returned uh, there's three of them I really know a lot about and so I'll write a blog about it uh, but I don't like to let a lot of people let AI write for them and I think there's always a like a artificiality even if you take it and, and restructure things it's not your own voice and I think a lot of people especially uh, in the real estate world because it's a very personal decision to buy a house, they want to hear your voice. You know what I mean? They don't want to hear machine learning tell them, you know, yeah, they can read the,
2: the top internet. 10 things. They yeah, exactly. They can look it up on the internet That's themselves right. and they can right. do that. They want to have that personal connection. Well, yeah. it's funny you say that. So so
0: I can't think of the study that was done, but, but I'll look it up afterwards. Uh, there was a study where AI, they did an AI um, doctor's visit and the AI uh, personality you know, received higher star ratings than actual doctors for for bedside care, and so, you know, I'm thinking, I'm I'm hearing you talk about this, and I'm like, I'm I'm imagining the Max Hedron of of Tank <laughs> right. Abrams, you know, inter- interfacing with uh, you know, with yeah, prop- yeah. you know, with potential buyers, and in the background, all you've got is that stubby pencil, big language algorithm that's unique to you, yeah, and that's providing that service, and so you can potentially be servicing a hundred clients at one time um, yeah. I don't know I, that, no, that's, to me uh, that was the that was the, what jumped in my brain that's no, pro- absolutely that's better. now trademarked
1: <laughs> now you I mean I think I think what you're you're on to something that is that is endemic in the uh, in the real estate world too which is you've got you've got kind of two broad categories of, of agent um, you've got some that are um, very very focused on customer service to the point where they're going to limit the number of, of clients they take. And then you've got some that are like, I'm going to take as many clients as I can from as many sources as I can. I'm going to service them all. If I have a couple of uh, a couple of fails, that's okay. Cause I'm going to continue churning, right? Volume agents. Yeah. Volume yeah. agents. Yeah. And so, um, and, and, and some of those are, some of them are great. Some of the teams are great. There's teams with a hundred plus people on it. I'm trying to find a middle ground with my team where, uh, and that's actually why I started. I, I was so successful my second year. Uh, that I realized there were people in the busiest months that weren't getting the attention they needed. So my third year is when I hired Rich Bailey, the best buyer's agent in San Antonio, if not the world. Um, Rich Bailey. Retired. You uh, should say uh, it. Yeah, retired warrant officer, Rich Bailey. Yeah, should I say his name? Yeah.
2: (laughs) Uh, Does he come to work? He's a warrant
1: officer, right? He's actually a a great
2: agent. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's not
1: too soon. He's a great agent. We have that joke all the time. Uh, But he, uh, um, anyway, I hired him because I realized that, uh, like, I was just, I was juggling too many things and I needed to start a team in order to, and, and so our, our service level has gone up exponentially with every hire. The other thing I did uh, pretty early on was hire a full-time assistant to handle the stuff that wasn't producing, you know, it was just stuff that had to get done uh, or it just wasn't as, as good a use of my time, and so those are two things that I did. Leverage, leverage when it comes to people, right, and you learn that in the in the military. You learn how to delegate so that you can kind of stay focused on the big picture, and that's even more important in business because time equals money. Sure.
2: You know, uh, I, have metric, I have a question, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will relate to the military, I promise, and I'll, I'll yeah. tee it up for you. I know. We're way outside the bounds of No, like but that's uh, good. We want to we dabble in, in, in everything, industry and yeah. in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were uh, an SFAT commander yeah. in Kandahar at one point, mm-hmm. so Security Force Assistance Team commander. Mm-hmm. Now, specifically for the um, – Afghan police, national police, correct. Mm -hmm. So when there's so many entities, I'm going to talk how to control noise in in the communication process as a communicator. So being there, there are so many different entities that have skin in the game. You know, you have the three-letter organizations, you have USAID, you have different battle space owners. And here you are as an SVAT commander where you're advising that that, um, chief of police usually. And you can speak a little bit on, on who you actually advise. Mm-hmm. But how do you control that noise where your message is still getting through and the message of the overall United States on how we're trying to influence and train and, and leave Afghan- Afghanistan as a better place? Mm-hmm. How do you relate that to the real estate world? We talked yeah. about um, people, they can look up. I mean, I have access to the Internet, so now I'm a real estate mogul. Mm-hmm. You have family members telling them, do this, do that. They have, well, my cousin's a, a real estate agent, and he told me to do this or not to buy this, and my neighbor's telling me this thing. How do you control the noise, and, and what lessons did you learn from being an SVAT commander that you bring to real estate?
1: That's actually, a, I mean, that's an incredibly insightful question. Um, I'm reading a book right now by Kahneman, thinking fast and slow guy. It's called Noise. And the whole, that's the whole, like your question is the premise of the book. There's so much out there. How do you, how do you structure it? how do you understand it? Uh, and I'm, I'm too, way too early. I just, just opened this thing. Uh, so I'm way too early in the, you know, to, to understand and, and be able to explain sort of what his theories are. But, uh, but yeah, that's, it's an incredible problem. Noise is an incredible problem. Um, and, and so I'll give you an experience. Uh, okay. So I had a couple of experiences, uh, and just so, so, uh, folks understand, uh, your, uh, um, Seth, your. uh, you know, reference to the SFAT. So, my battalion level command for the for the active duty folks out there that are still you know trying to figure out how I, you know, how I wound up where I where I wound up. Uh, my battalion level command was essentially selected security force assistant team commander. They stopped doing that, and that became a second command down the road for much bigger organizations. Uh, but essentially, that was the we were the seed corn for what became the the security force assistance brigades. Um, so I had competed for tactical battalion command. Rightfully, I wasn't selected for tactical battalion command because I was, you know, I had done some jobs that had taken me out of the force for a little bit. Uh, so, uh, but they gave me this uh, this security force assistance team, which wound up being incredibly rewarding uh, and, and really some of the best times in the army was leading that small team in Afghanistan. Uh, General Terry uh, James Terry, who I worked for a couple of times in my career, a wonderful guy, uh, great great leader. Climb to glory. Yeah, exactly. I never worked for him at, at uh, Tenth Mountain. I wish I had, but I uh, didn't. Didn't wind up going there. Uh, but he um, he was the commander in uh, in a- Afghanistan uh, when I was down there. This uh, in in uh, eleven twelve as an advisor, and he made the decision to we we originally went to become a brigade uh, level uh, advisor, and then he made the decision that all of the centrally selected advisors were going to cover down on police formations because rightfully so in the counterinsurgency environment the police population control you know uh, really getting out there in, in in the middle of the populations was you know was the most important thing and then I, I wound up being uh, moved on then from the, my army gig to uh, living in the Dand district uh, uh, police headquarters with the with the Dan district chief of Police for anybody who doesn't know Afghanistan Dan district west of Kandahar uh, was the Karzai family's home district. And so all of the Karzai brothers had massive palatial compounds there. Uh, but also it was uh, controlled the west side of Kandahar airfield. So for, you know, we had a responsibility to make sure the police were set up to prevent rocket attacks from RAO sure. as well. Um, but the Dan district chief of police was a former Soviet trained police officer uh, who, when the Taliban took over, went down to Pakistan, ran a hotel, uh, which was really a mud hut where people got to sleep when they were traveling. Uh, he cooked for them. He was, you know, so he had all kinds of kind of cool uh, background. But then they brought him back in because of his police background. He was never going to make it past major. Uh, Ramatullah was his name. Uh, he was never going to make it past major because uh, he. Most of the people now in the Afghan forces had been Mujahideen when he was working for the Soviets, but they also knew he was probably knew more about police work than anybody in Afghanistan at the time. He'd been a, a homicide detective in, in Kabul uh, before he became, a, you know, a police chief, and then they moved him down to—he uh, was, he was a, a Kabul district police chief, in one of the bigger, more populated districts, and they brought him down to Dand uh, about the same time that General Razik Riz, moved in uh, to become the chief of police mm-hmm. in Kandahar. So, anyway, you know, I'm working with Ramatullah. Uh, we have a—we get a—, we did a um, uh, a call from a special Forces liaison basically saying, you've got a bad guy at one of your police checkpoints. And so we're going go in and do uh, we're going to go in and do what we've got to do. Just make sure you're not in the area. So here I am. We've got 11 police checkpoints, about 400 police on the force. Uh, this call came at about two weeks after we'd completed a pretty uh, pretty robust uh, marksmanship and gunnery program with them teach them how to use their machine guns how to maintain their machine guns how to set up sectors of fire Uh, and so you know my mind immediately goes to this no matter how well it starts it's not going to end well for us and the police right Um, so I wind up uh, having a a lengthy conversation that has to go up several levels um, and it goes back to your question about noise right I could have just said okay uh, don't tell anybody. I got this directive, you know, we're gonna let this play out. Um, so I wind up having this conversation up several levels to where um, people realize, okay, if we if we do some sort of a raid on this, you know, well prepared, well defended police checkpoint, somebody's gonna get killed. Um, and so uh, what they wound up letting me do was actually lead them onto the onto the checkpoint under the guise of, hey, we're just coming to do a nighttime check in, and then. Um, and then essentially the exploiters did their thing, uh, against the, you know, the heavy protest of my partner, the police chief and everybody below him. They, they took a guy with them when they left, who wound up being completely innocent. Uh, but, uh, he happened to meet the profile that they were looking for. Um, And then you get into the problem of, so that's, that's how, you know, first of all, how do you react to noise, right? There's, there's a tremendous amount of judgment required to to kind of see through everything and go, what's the logical termination of this particular activity? And then, um, and and then to intervene, it takes courage and and a little bit, you know, and and judgment to intervene and you have to be able to articulate um, and accept risk as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, you have to, yeah, you have to accept personal risk for sure, mm-hmm. but you have, to, um, y- you have to be able to articulate to the people above you, here's why this is a bad idea. And if you, if you haven't spent time practicing uh, articulation of things, you know, whether you're writing things out in logical sequence, uh, you, you can fail at that point because there's the, uh, there's the great example of the, the space shuttle explosion, right, where all the scientists had all the data in the world to, to say, hey, we know this is going to explode, but they couldn't articulate it. And so it's super important to be able to explain to people: here's what will happen if you do this, and here's why. Boom, boom, boom. Logic.
0: So, um, so I'm we. I'm sure we, you have to be persistent too, right? You have to yeah, be persistent, and absolutely. then even change yeah. the change your approach if, if yeah. it's not working on uh, that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. and, and so, and this is again uh, one of those things that's just the reality of the way our forces were structured then. Maybe it's changed a little bit, but typically speaking, the the special ops liaison who's sitting in a brigade headquarters. Is not the most experienced special operator, right? He's a guy that's got a mission. He's a great officer or a great NCO, but he's got a mission from higher, and his mission is to protect the, the the trade space for his special operators that are out there on the battlefield, often operating across the lines of many units that have their own geographical space, right? So those special ops operations are traversing somebody else's, you know, supposed battle space all time to- at all the time. Uh, and so, but what that does is like you said, it's very easy for him to say, okay, no worries. We got this and then not tell anybody. And so, you know, you got to give him a timeline say, Hey, look, like I know you're planning to do this thing at 10, 10 PM. Uh, but uh, I need an answer back on my request from the next guy in your chain of command by 4 PM, or I'm going to go to the next level up. And I did have to do that. I had to go back and say, look, look, this is serious. Like, so yeah, you have to be persistent. You have to be articulate. And then, and then you said personal risk. Actually, my you know, been shot at, uh, been uh, been blown up uh, not not a lot compared to most of my peers in, in the infantry, uh, but enough to know it sucks. Uh, and uh, the most dangerous the most danger I was in, Bar none, I'm convinced uh, of any of my three years in combat zones um, was the following day, and, and this is where the other the other key word here is accountability. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about that too. Um, but the, I knew, I did a quick assessment, uh, and I knew that like there was going to be a lot of anger, right? And not only my, um, you know, personal, um, competence and, and, uh, credibility was at risk here with, you know, with all of these Afghans who I was entrusted to lead and, and, and mentor and all that stuff, but also more importantly, the chief of police who I'm trying to help, you know, be in charge. Um, and so I, I, after doing that assessment, you know, and he came to me and said, how are you going to explain this to my leaders? And so he was very explicit on that. He knew that it needed to be me. And so we actually held court in the in the Afghan uh, um, uh, compound. And I had a couple of marksmen up on the roof, but I didn't have anybody standing right next to me uh, except for my interpreter. And I sat there and then he had his guys, his trusted guys that he knew wasn't, you know, were, had been their family members of his uh, standing behind us, and we sat there, and eleven checkpoint commanders with their guys armed to the teeth drove in to the compound and marched up to me and and, and asked me to explain to them why why they weren't next. You know what what since you since you rolled up this checkpoint, you know what what makes what, what can I do to walk back to my folks and say we're not it's not going to happen to us, and so I had to have that conversation uh, eleven times and it was you know it was it was hard and uh, and i did, we did lose a little bit of credibility over it but if i hadn't it, but i think that was about 6 months before the end of the deployment and if i hadn't had done that um, i think the we would have gone completely off the rails for the rest of the You're deployment. talking
2: about if you didn't have eat the the, the individual talk with each Yeah, if i didn't, if I didn't yeah, accept yeah, accountability absolutely.
1: and said, you know, hey, this is, you know, this is extremely important. Uh, we did this because, you know, we 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 felt like and if he's innocent, he's going to come back, and he did, you know, a couple days later. Right.
2: So You gave them the why, um, yeah, but, exactly. but in person and to, to yeah. maintain that credibility. Yeah, that's exactly. Awesome.
1: We had a similar thing happen, same deployment with um, uh, when, uh, uh, what's his name, the, the staff sergeant went crazy. and, and uh, Bergdahl? No, not Bergdahl, although that's a different one. But uh, I know who you're talking about. You no, know, the, the guy, that uh, Meeks, I think his name was. It might not be right, so uh, – yeah, maybe Google it real quick so I don't I don't want to get time. somebody
2: get somebody in trouble. Staff sergeant in second ID, I believe. Yeah, yeah.
1: He walked off. He was he was securing a special ops compound. Uh had gotten frustrated over one of his buddies being killed by an ID, I think is the story. And so in the middle of the night he he put on Afghan garb and walked out and, and massacred uh families in two villages and then came back in and they arrested him. Um, and so our, our job, all of us advisors at the time, we talk about like, you know. The, the things advisors did, uh, all of us advisors at the time were tasked with B- bails. Bails, that's right. Yes, that's our bail. So we we were tasked with um, uh, showing the the uh, overhead video that was taken of him being apprehended by the guards at his compound because he came marching back in uh, thinking he was just going to walk in, take off his garb, and be good. And they were like, they by then they had known a. Uh, that he had escaped or that he had been, been gone for a while, and, B, that there had been a bunch of murders uh, because there was already chatter on the radios and stuff like that. And so uh, they apprehended him, and they got that on video. And then I had to play that video for um, for a, a bunch of my different Afghan partners, the district uh, chief of police, the, the district um, governor, uh, you know, and, and, and just explain, look, like, you know, this is something that we did. It's horrible. We're going to make it right. This guy's going to go to jail, uh, and then also had to be present at the at the money transfer as part of the you know the uh, compensation for victims. And stuff. So, uh, anyway,
2: I don't know how that applies to noise, but that, that's a lot of noise. Yeah, but 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 how do you do that? So y- you you talked about how well you 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 did that as an SVAC commander in the yeah. military at large, mm-hmm. but how do you do that in the real estate world in the industry world? How does what you just explained and yeah. how you, how you learned. Um, how, how, you know, what's the equivalent of bringing 11 checkpoint commanders in when someone's trying to buy a house or sell a house and you're seeing these buyers come through and and there's all this noise and, and they have different skin in the game because they're about to to make a life altering purchase or sale. Um, so it's, it's, it's important and you can't downplay it. Right. Um,
1: yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a couple of, uh, a couple of theories, uh, that you apply to this, uh, theories of emotional intelligence, um, if you haven't read Daniel Goleman, uh, Primal Leadership is a great one. He's he, that was I think his best book in my opinion because it applies to you know emotional intelligence and leadership. Uh, but what what that does is it allows you to it gives you a theory by which to uh, analyze your own reaction to events, uh, to it, to prioritize empathy and listening, uh, and then you know, if you have the, the experience, the life experience to kind of that allows you to sort through what's important, what's not important. Um, it gives you a framework, you know, by which to, to then respond to somebody's concerns, or to or to lead them and, and real estate, by far, the most important task of a real estate agent is leadership. Our job is to lead people most of the time they know they want to go a certain direction or to a certain area or whatever, but to lead people through a problem, right? Because ultimately I'm not selling anything. Um, if I can, but that's not necessarily true. If I have a (laughs) listing, I'm going to sell that. You know, I want to make sure it looks the best. And that's part of my problem set to solve, to, to make sure that listing is, is, and a lot of that requires work by the, by the, people that are listing the property. But as far as just getting somebody from point A to point, we have to lead them through, there's all kinds of noise and all kinds of frustrations and stuff, and I have to be able to lead them through that. So that's why I think that emotional intelligence uh, is, is key. And then the second part is humility. Uh, we get so bound up in our own perception of who we are and what our worth is that we forget that it's really probably only important to us right? Like people want results. People want information. People want a relationship, but people don't care if you were the quarterback of the football team 30 years ago. You know what I mean? Like they don't, they don't give a darn. Uh, they just want to know you're there for them and how, you know, the old thing, how, how you made them feel and all that kind of stuff, which I'm not always great at. Uh, but the one thing that I think, um, I always try to go back and do is, is say, okay, is it okay if I'm not right? You know? And, and most of the time it is if, if somebody has a better idea, um, and so I always try to analyze stuff not based on sort of how it makes me feel about myself, but really how it, how it applies to the problem. So, uh, humility is super important as well. Um, and the, uh, I, I just finished, uh, Gadwell's latest book. Um, it's called, uh, talking to strangers. He's got a really good quote. If you don't mind, can I read it? Really yeah, absolutely. Please book. do. Uh, it says, uh, there's no, it, and so the, the background on this book is talking to strangers. He's, um, He's talking about, you know, how people talk past each other all the time. And, and so, you know, you and I can be having a conversation about military planners, and you'll ask me a question about military planners, and I'll go on for like 30 minutes about being an advisor in Afghanistan. It has nothing <laughs> to do with military planners. So, uh, you know, I, I kid, but, uh, but he's talking about and he, and he gives a bunch of situations. He talks about this, the Cuban spy scandal where we had, you know, for generations, we had, we had spies in the CIA, right, working in the CIA, uh, that were that were in the employment of Fidel Castro, and he, and in a lot of uh, uh, one of the reasons I read it. I'm really interested in um, in the this, the socio uh, social demographics of of violence, you know, um, racial violence, and, and those sorts of things, because it, it really interests me. Um, so, and he's got a lot of stuff about the um, you know uh, police killings and things like that. So he says. Uh, there's no perfect mechanism for the CIA to uncover spies in its midst or for investors to spot schemers and frauds, or for any of those we do not know. What is required of us is restraint and humility. And so, uh, you know, responding in, in a way that generates, that keeps the conversation going, but doesn't completely overshadow, you know, what the other person is trying to say. And it's something I work on all the time. And then the last thing I've talked about a little bit, but, uh, but accountability. I don't think excellence doesn't really happen without accountability, one of the things when you, like I lead conversations a lot of time when something's happened or we're trying to kind of get to the bottom of a problem. I lead conversations a lot of time with, you know, here's what I think I could have done better. And like 90% of the time, this is an, an immediate response you'll get from somebody is don't be so hard on yourself. And I get so mad when people do that because um, it, it's not about being hard on yourself. It's just about, being, about about being open to the fact that maybe I could have done something better because I think that also helps people breaks down their barriers to go you know what I could have done I could have maybe explained what I was looking for a little bit better you know or or something like that so that accountability and that ability now there's all kinds of roadblocks to accountability whether it's your you know not just ego but also um, there's fear of litigation and there's fear of failure and all those sorts of things so it's hard to do but I think it's super important.
0: I'm fascinated by this conversation I mean for two reasons one I think from a planner perspective, what I'm hearing you say, you know, it, it's about culture too, right? Yeah, so it's your sure. value-based culture that you're you're able to have that, you know, that learning environment. But then also you have the ability to understand the frameworks, right? And then I think a couple times I think what you've heard, you're you talking about noise and how do you talk through that noise? You know, what you're really talking through is competing frameworks that are in play in your environment, and you're trying to sort of as a planner or as a as a practitioner, you know, level level these competing worldviews even, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, trying to accomplish what, what was believed to be the, you know, the objective, maybe take a little bit of a step back and, you know, 35 years removed from being a Humvee driver, you know, what are some of the, because you talked about bias, right. And you talked about the things that sort of made you who you are. And so if you look back to, you know, driving a Humvee, a young enlisted soldier, you know, fast forward to $33 million in sales in San Antonio. Um, you know, what were some of those, you know, early experiences, you know, some of those early interactions that you had that that you would say, you know, this really kind of shaped, you know, that humility that, mm-hmm. you know, that I value in my life or that I value in the culture that, that um, you know, that I pride myself in, in terms of, uh, you know, the ties team. In fact, but while I let you think on that, you mm. um, where can the listeners find you? Uh, you talked about your brand a little bit, but you didn't really say what it was.
1: Yeah, so uh, so the Abrams Real Estate Ties team. Uh, Ties is an acronym uh, that stands for Trust, Integrity, Expertise, and Service. Um, and, uh, and you'll see my logo is a bow tie. And on closing day, I wear a bow tie uh, that, that really kind of symbolizes sort of my, you know, my respect for the people that I'm serving uh, kind of a call back to like an old school concierge, you know, uh, how can I help you, sir? And, uh, or ma'am. And, and so uh, I felt like, you know, it's, this is a huge, important decision for people in the real estate world. We're talking about lots of money changing hands. So I always want people to know I take it very seriously. Um, and, uh, and then our website is, uh, is www.realestateties.com. Uh, real estate ties us together and, uh, all one word. All one word, yeah. realestateties.com, all one word, yeah. And then uh, um, you can also follow me on social media if you follow hashtag I only close in bows, all one word. Because I think hashtags have to be all one word.
2: They do, <laughs> yeah. And
0: and not everyone can pull off a uh, a bow tie. That's so, true. I mean, that's I mean, that's that's a risky
2: move.
1: And if you Google, if you Google David Abrams bow tie tying, I think, or something like that, you'll get my YouTube video on how to tie a
2: bow tie. I'm, I'm gonna look at it because <laughs> for my sister's wedding I wore a bow tie and I was like, oh, I can tie a bow tie. I watched the YouTube video that morning. Didn't work that well. So luckily there was one gentleman in the in the audience that yeah, came yeah. back there and helped me. So it is a skill. That is, that
1: is it's a skill that's atrophied.
0: Well I, I would say I think you snuck mm-hmm. two things in on us on this okay. podcast. One, one was you know burning the ships, which is a yeah. Sun Tzu quote. Yeah. Uh, and the second was only real Bow tie wearers, I mean, there's no clip-ons. There's no clip-ons. There, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's a real deal. I
1: was, I was you know, pleasantly uh, gifted with some clip-on bow ties that hang in my uh, in my closet, but I don't wear them. <laughs> They're nice though. But, you know, I, I will actually. There's a there's a company called. While we're on the subject of bow ties, there's a company called Bracken uh, that makes these really really cool uh, feather bow ties. And I'm not I'm not endorsed by them. I don't I don't they don't pay me yet. Yeah.
2: <laughs> they will once they hear the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One million downloads. Yeah, that's
1: right. <laughs> so the Bracken uh, uh, bow ties are made are really nice, uh, handcrafted with feathers, mm-hmm. and so that's the only clip-on I wear is a, is a Bracken bow tie.
2: Yeah. Nice, anyway. speaking my language. I'm gonna have to go take a look yeah, at. Yeah, they're them. pretty cool.
1: Yeah, I was gifted one by by a developer I helped uh, buy, buy properties. So.
0: That's awesome. Nice. Sounds so fun. I gave you time to think about being a Humvee driver yeah, again, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you gave us the acronym of ties, which yeah, I think yeah. is you know in line with I think you know, the question. Yeah. Um, and so what, you know, what yeah. were those events?
1: So, um, I, you know, I think probably the, the seminal events throughout my career um, that that made me who I am. So, and I'll actually go back even further than that in a little bit, but, or in a second. But um, like throughout my career, I had people uh, who saw the good in me, even when I wasn't, Displaying it uh, overtly, um, and 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 kind of absorbed my shenanigans and 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 allowed me to be successful, um, and and maybe even at times it wasn't fair. Now I never I, like I didn't have a DUI or anything like that, but I did. I got in a couple of fights, uh, you know, and and uh, um, you know, and and just things things in my career where things could have gone off the rails, and I was trusted, and and those you know those leaders, and I think. That's where the, the trust in in uh, in ties comes from. Is I think you have to trust first in order to gain trust. Uh, and I think so many times you hear leaders say, um, you know, you got to you got to earn my trust. And I think it's really the other way around. Like a leader has to trust his people until they've proven that they can, and that means accepting risk. Uh, but uh, so so I think um, you know as I've as I've you know failed, I, I told you the story about it as a young Humvee driver. Uh, I had just been hired. Never, I never, actually, it was the only trip I took as the company commander's Humvee driver as a, as a private first class. Uh, first Sergeant pulled me out of the field and said, you know, and I was already licensed and everything, obviously, but he said, hey, uh, you know, you're a, you're a hot shot Strack soldier. I don't even know if that word is used anymore. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you're Strack. Uh, you work hard. You've got great PT scores. You're going to be a great driver for the company commander. Uh, and, you, you know, and at the time, I, I was uh, applying to the West Point Prep School. Company commander was in a hurry. He told me that when he got in the Humvee on our first trip, and we were going from garrison out to the field, the the, the company uh, command post. Uh, I happened to have grown up in little town of Forks, Washington, with a lot of gravel roads and a, and a nice pickup truck. Uh, not nice, an old beater pickup truck that I drove at high speeds down those gravel roads and got really, really good at uh, controlled controlled skids around corners, drifting. Yeah, which evidently is not the right technique to use for your company commander when he's in a hurry to get to a meeting in the field. <laughs> and so after the second time, he told me to stop, politely asked me to change places with him, and he drove himself to the CP, and I never saw this driver. It sounds like you
2: MVP. you might have been certified, but not qualified yeah, to drive that. 100%,
1: correct, yeah, 100%. But, uh, you know, what? I think what, uh, what really actually tells the tale that I was talking about before about, you know, that's my first failure of many is that he still – like, he didn't crush me for it, you know what I mean? He just said, okay, I think you're better off back at the FTC uh, with the mortar platoon, uh, where you came from. And, uh, and then, it, you know, I still was uh, got high recommendations for the prep school, which, ne- you know, never I never would have gotten into West Point without him. So,
2: Do you still talk to him?
1: No, you know, I, I lost track. when I, when I, So he was, uh, uh, I think, Gerald Prohasik was his name, and he left the Army, I'm pretty sure, uh, not too long after company command. And then uh, First Sergeant Cruz, who retired not too long after that as well, and I just kind of lost track with those guys, unfortunately. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you know they they were kind enough not to just you know, tell me I was no longer able to get into the prep school. So, they,
2: they let yeah. you fail forward. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's a good thing to have. Yep.
0: So we ask all of our uh, all of our guests uh, on this uh, podcast about uh, reading. And so we can do two things, uh, because you, we've also we've already gotten about four. I was gonna say think, I've uh, written
2: down about six already, yeah, yeah, sir. Yeah. So I'm not sure. I've got a few more. Yeah, let's do it
0: though. Or or <laughs> we can say aside from the general planning uh, general planning podcast, what other podcasts do you would you recommend? Um, or we can go, stick with the yeah. book. We can okay. or we can stick with the book.
1: No, no, no. I, I uh, so I'll, can I do a couple of each? Yeah, right. let's do so it. I, I so but I get first, all of my I get all of my pop culture from Smartless. Smartless. Yeah, you ever you ever listen to that? Okay, so this is where I get all my pop culture. This and, and Howard Stern. I don't listen to the radio show, but I but I do listen to his uh, his celebrity interviews.
2: Is he still but popular? Considered popular culture nowadays. He, he's he's does an, he's an incredible interviewer.
1: Yes, and he does. And so he, you know, and so all of these because he has millions of followers too. All of these, you know, celebrities go to him. He gets really deep into their background, and it's it's really interesting. But Smartless is. Uh, uh, Jason Bateman, Bateman, Will Arnett, and Sean Hayes, and they're just talking. And it's really what's great about it is they'll have uh, the three of them, kind of joking and cutting up, and they'll have a guest. And they might every ten minutes ask the guest a question. And they're, they're just—I mean, it's a great. But it's, I want to go on their idea. podcast. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm Smartless. So, and probably most Smartless listeners will listen to the General Planning podcast. I'm
2: sure they so. will. I'll pitch it to Jason yeah. Bateman. I really like him. He's <laughs> awesome.
1: So, um, yeah. So. the... Those are, I don't do, I mean, I, I do some other random podcasts, uh, but the general planning podcast is by far my favorite Thank you, uh, planning podcast. Um, and then uh, as far as uh, I, I talked about um, Noise by Kahneman, I think it's going to be a great book. But if you haven't read, if, if your listeners haven't read Thinking Fast and Slow, I think it's one of the most important books ever written. I really do. Because it, it teaches you to kind of step out of your your sort of, you know, walking down the street everyday thinking and really – Analyze not just what you're thinking about a problem, but how you're thinking about a problem.
0: Yeah, I agree. Yeah. System one, system two, brain, absolutely
1: yeah, heuristics and all that yep. stuff. Yeah, um, and then uh, you know another one that goes along with that is Mind Wide Open by Sam. I think it's Daniel Johnson or Samuel Johnson. I can't remember, but that's a that's another one about how the brain functions. And so what it does is it gives you sort of the chemical, uh, uh, the chemical genesis of emotional response. We know emotional response actually clouds judgment. Clouds your ability to think critically. Um, and so, uh, and there's some really interesting uh, stuff on that. And then uh, I talked about noise by Kahneman. And then on the, in the, uh, um, in the, I, I think a really great one for anybody who's having trouble getting started. So everybody knows who Pressfield is. Gates of Fire author, right? Have you read Gates of Fire? Yeah. read Gates of Fire. If you haven't read Gates of Fire, it's an incredible. It's a novel. Uh, about the Spartans, and I, it'll, it'll I, fire you up. It'll make you want to re up.
2: I'll read it, but I, re- <laughs> I read as well as you probably drive a Humvee, sir. So that's why. I read as many <laughs> well, books. you can
1: listen to it on Audible. It's, it's it'd be a great listen. There we go. I'm in. Yeah, it'd be a great listen. So, but Gates of Fire is an incredible book, especially for young officers and war and you know who are, who want to be warriors. It's a, it's a phenomenal. Uh, but Pressfield, the same guy, uh, wrote a book that I really enjoyed called The War of Art, and The War of Art is a uh, it's a treatise. It's really a motivational treatise on getting stuff done, like how to get started, how to how to tell everybody around you to leave you alone so you can go in and, and write the book you've been talking about writing for twenty years. Right? Produce, yeah, it's su- super important for me here lately because I've been, you know, trying to sort of figure out how to use my time better, and so.
0: Okay, so I'll bite then. Yeah. All right, so he he's taken the book mm-hmm. title art of war and yeah. flips it. That's so correct. has, does everything flip? No. Or is it no. just the, the pithy, the yeah,
1: pithy It's title? just, it's really just a title. Yeah. Okay. He doesn't, he doesn't follow the framework of Sun, Sun Tzu. Okay. Uh, but he, but he really, what he talks about more than anything is resistance. This idea that, you know, essentially anything that keeps you from your goals is resistance and how do you, how to just eliminate resistance in your life to, to get done essentially I mean if you want to boil the book down to one paragraph it'd be a paragraph that says sit down and do it get your ass to work quit making excuses you know but it's a great it's a great read so anyway
0: all right well we really appreciate you coming on Dave thanks
1: appreciate you having me
0: no thanks again appreciate it